Hey, it's Elmira. I wanted to let you know that we've changed our name. We've gone from being PS Podcast to Opinion Has It. We sat down and we thought about it, and Opinion Has It really just reflects who we are. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. I'm here to um, do a podcast with Ambassador Burns. Oh, okay. Hello, Mr. Barnes has have guests here that's doing a podcast. America first. That is what Donald Trump promised on the campaign trail. It's a refrain he has repeated many times since winning the U.S. presidency. And he's fulfilled his promise of a new approach to the world. Rather than focusing on sustaining the liberal world order that the United States helped create after World War II, Trump has shunned the multilateralism and diplomacy on which that order was based. Sorry, there's apparently there's a sinkhole on GW Parkway, and now it's closed indefinitely. So, traffic is not great. Glad to know that Washington, D.C. has infrastructure problems, too. Yes. yes. Do you guys need anything from us? Or you're sort of like self-contained? Yeah, we're self-contained. Got it. Since his inauguration just over two years ago, Trump has alienated traditional U.S. allies and embraced its adversaries. He has questioned America's role in NATO and engagement with Europe. He has withdrawn the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia lies in tatters. And one year ago this month, he abandoned the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, commonly known as the Iran nuclear deal. How will these policy reversals affect America's role in the world, both now and in the long term? William Burns joins me to answer that question. Hello. Hey, nice to see you again. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. How are you? Nice to see you. William J. Burns served in the U.S. Foreign Service for 33 years. He served as Deputy Secretary of State, only the second career diplomat to hold that post. He led the U.S. team at the start of the negotiations that culminated in the Iran nuclear deal. He is currently the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the author of a new book, The Back Channel, a memoir of American diplomacy and the case for its renewal, published by Random House. He joins me from his office in Washington. Ambassador, you subtitle your book, A Memoir of American Diplomacy and the Case for Its Renewal. What's happened to diplomacy why does it need to be renewed? Well, f- first, it's great to be with you. Um, you know, over the course of three and a half decades as a professional American diplomat, I've never seen a moment when diplomacy mattered more than it does today to promoting American interests overseas. And I've never seen a moment when it's more adrift. The truth, as you well know, is that, you know, we're no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block today with the rise of China, the resurgence of Russia. I still think the United States has a better hand to play than any of our rivals, you know, not just our military and economic strength, the innovation at the core of our economy, but it also it's our capacity to draw on alliances and to mobilize coalitions of countries, which sets us apart in a way from lonelier powers like China and Russia. And diplomacy, in my view, is really the key. It's our tool of first resort to take advantage of that great asset as we look out ahead over the next couple of decades. 
But I think we've been drifting for a while in terms of our focus on diplomacy. Uh, Donald Trump didn't invent that drift. I think, you know, at the end of the Cold War, we naturally became a little bit complacent, you know, about at a moment when, you know, we were the singular dominant player on the landscape. Uh, and so, you know, the Congress cut budgets for the State Department and for foreign assistance through the 90s. In the last several years of the 90s, we didn't take in any new foreign service officers. Then, of course, came the deep shock of 9-11. And, you know, a natural tendency after that to invest even further in military and intelligence tools to fight terrorism and increasingly to treat diplomacy as an under-resourced afterthought. So that's the backdrop. President Obama for whom I have great regard, tried hard, I think, to rebalance not only our priorities in the world, but also the tools in our toolkit, give greater prominence to diplomacy and development alongside defense. But it was hard. Then came President Trump, um, who, you know, in many respects has accelerated that drift and made it infinitely worse. And it's not just in terms of the, you know, specifics. You know, he proposed, the White House proposed a budget uh, a week ago that for the third year in a row, uh, you know, pushes for historic cuts in the budget for the State Department and for foreign assistance as much as a quarter uh, in this proposed budget. Um, you've seen a 50% drop in the number of young people applying to join the Foreign Service. You've seen, you know, a reversal of what was already painfully so slow progress toward greater gender and ethnic diversity in the Foreign Service uh, move into reverse. You've seen the really pernicious practice of going after individual career officers because they worked on controversial issues in the last administration. But the last thing I'd say is it's not just those specific examples. It's the broader uh, sense of disdain that you get out of this White House for professional diplomacy and for you know, it's, it's professional practitioners. You know, the president was asked a little more than a year ago whether he was concerned about a whole range of, you know, historically high levels of vacancies and senior positions in the State Department. And he said, let me tell you, the one that matters is me. I'm the only one that matters because when it comes to it, that's what the policy is going to be. You've seen that. You've seen it strongly. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the diplomacy of narcissism, not the diplomacy of institutions. Picking up on that point about diplomacy and how it has normally been conducted, I actually also think it's interesting that the title of your book is The Back Channel. The Back Channel takes place out of public view. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the concept, what is a diplomatic back channel and why is it so important? Sure. Well, I use the term really for two reasons. One, as you rightly suggest, you know, diplomacy itself is oftentimes conducted in back channels, out of sight, out of mind. You know, diplomacy is one of the world's oldest professions, but probably also one of the most misunderstood. So that's kind of the broad meaning of the term. The specific practical meaning is that you know, from time to time, the United States has decided to try to establish quiet channels between authoritative representatives of a couple of governments, um, usually governments with severe differences, oftentimes governments without formal diplomatic relations, on the theory that you can quietly explore 
you know, ways of diffusing problems or reducing tensions often set the stage for more public conversations. And that, that doing it quietly enables you to avoid the glare of publicity and the political baggage on both sides of a relationship. And, you know, the most spectacular example of that in modern American diplomatic history was Henry Kissinger's secret talks um, with China in the early 1970s, facilitated by the government of Pakistan. And oftentimes you'll see in back channels in those secret talks or quiet channels a third party that helps facilitate them. I was involved in a number of back channels over the course of my checkered career, you know, one with Gaddafi's Libya, which was facilitated by the British in the early 2000s, in which building on efforts that the Clinton administration had started in the 1990s, we sought first to get the Gaddafi government, the Gaddafi regime, to accept its responsibility for the Lockerbie terrorist attack um, in the late 1980s um, and to pay compensation to the families and to basically get out of the business of terrorism. And then that led to continuing quiet back-channel talks that produced Gaddafi's decision to give up his nuclear program. And then I was involved in secret talks with the Iranians on the nuclear issues a decade later. Um, I led the U.S. team with some really smart colleagues um, that engaged the Iranians in secret talks, at this time facilitated by the government of Oman, um, throughout most of 2013. And to this day, it surprises me that we were able to keep that quiet in this day and age. There was a lot of controversy over doing those talks secretly, but I'm convinced to this day that President Obama was right because I don't think we would have made the progress that we did in that period. We helped produce an interim agreement at the end of 2013. You know, after 35 years without sustained diplomatic contact, um, and huge mistrust in both capitals, it would have been very difficult to test the possibilities for progress if we hadn't started, at least, in that quiet back channel. I'd like to continue on this thread of Iran. Um, you just mentioned that there were these back channel discussions. They actually started under George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about how they came about? Well, we didn't. I mean, at the very end of the George W. Bush administration, we began to think of ways in which we could not only join the public negotiations with the Iranians um, through the so-called P5 plus one, the permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany, um, on the nuclear issue, um, basically to demonstrate that we weren't the problem counter to the Iranian argument that the Americans' reluctance to engage directly was the reason we weren't making progress. Um, and that turned out accelerated by the Obama administration to be both a smart test of the Iranians, but also, and their willingness to engage in serious negotiations in that era, but also a smart investment in, you know, mobilizing greater economic and political pressure from a pretty strong international coalition of countries, which ultimately then set the stage for the, you know, secret bilateral talks in 2013. Now, there had also been, over Afghanistan, uh, earlier in the Bush administration after 9-11, a set of quiet talks um, in which uh, the United States, one of my colleagues, Ryan Crocker, a wonderful former ambassador uh, with whom I worked in the Near East Bureau in the State Department, um, led um, 
in coordination with the United Nations envoy, a uh, set of discussions with Iranian representatives as well about Afghanistan, you know, a country in which Iran has a pretty deep stake, um, has a pretty good feel for the politics of that country, didn't need to be persuaded that overthrowing the Taliban regime was a good thing for Afghanistan and the region. So those talks um, also conducted quietly um, were quite useful in that period. But, you know, unfortunately, um, essentially were blown up uh, when the president gave his axis of evil um, speech. Um, and that made it very difficult to sustain those kind of conversations. But they produced some practical results in helping to put together a post-Taliban uh, government in Afghanistan. There was an agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and that seemed to be a huge success. And last year, President Trump withdrew from that agreement. This is one of the worst deals ever made by any country in history. The deal with Iran will lead to nuclear problems. All they have to do is sit back 10 years, and they don't have to do much. Critics of the Iran nuclear deal have said that Iran needs to give up its nuclear program entirely and renounce terrorism before the U.S. considers sitting down to negotiate. Is this all-or-nothing approach effective or counterproductive? Or worse, is it deliberately provocative? Well, you know, in my experience over the years, grand bargains, um, you know, transactions in which you effectively settle the whole range of differences uh, between adversaries are uh, extraordinarily rare. Um, and oftentimes what you have to focus on in diplomacy is the art of the possible. Um, would we have liked to have done, you know, a comprehensive deal with Iran which eliminated all the threatening Iranian actions, not just on the nuclear issue, but across a whole range of issues in the Middle East, efforts to subvert a number of our friends and partners? Of course we would have. But what was possible um, and I think President Obama made exactly the right judgment on this, was to limit one uh, source of insecurity and fragility, which was an unconstrained Iranian nuclear program. Um, and so we set out to see if we could use diplomacy in a very hard-nosed sense, backed up by economic and political leverage and backed up by the potential use of force, you know, had the Iranians decided to break out and develop a nuclear weapon um, and ignore diplomacy. Um, and I think that was the right approach then, and it remains the right approach today. Is it a perfect agreement? Uh, of course not. Perfect is rarely on the menu for diplomats. It was, in my view, and remains today, the best of the available alternatives to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon and to constrain its civilian nuclear program over a long period of years. Um, it left us with the challenge and left lots of our partners with the challenge of dealing with other threatening Iranian actions. Nobody in Washington that I knew of, certainly not President Obama, expected an overnight transformation of Iranian behavior after the comprehensive nuclear agreement, nor did they expect an overnight transformation of U.S.-Iranian relations. This was one step which limited one quite serious set of risks posed by Iran's unconstrained nuclear program, uh, and at best uh, was the beginning of what would be a long, painstaking slog diplomatically to continue to push back firmly against other forms of you know, threatening Iranian actions. Despite withdrawing from the agreement and the reimposing of sanctions on Iran, 
Iran is still abiding by the agreement. Is there a future for the agreement? Well, I hope there is. I mean, I think it was an historic mistake for President Trump to abandon the nuclear agreement. I think uh, that decision to abandon the agreement was based on some false assumptions, uh, chief of which was the assumption that purely through the reapplication of unilateral American economic and political pressure that we could cause the regime in Tehran um, to either capitulate or implode. And I think that's a view and an assumption that's not tethered to history. Of course, we can do a lot of damage through the power of the American financial system um, to the Iranian economy. But I, I don't believe that it's going to cause you know, that regime uh, to capitulate. Um, and I think there's, uh, in the medium term, you do a fair amount of collateral damage in other areas. For example, we're widening the fissure through our decision to pull out of the Iranian nuclear agreement, widening the fissure with our closest European allies who are trying to stick to it, and in a sense doing Vladimir Putin's work for him. Um, we're also, I think, over time eroding the utility of sanctions as an instrument of American foreign policy. Yet even the foreign minister of Germany a year ago or so say publicly that all of us need to reduce our vulnerability to the American financial system. And so we haven't always used that tool, economic sanctions, effectively. Sometimes we've overused it. But I think we're really running the risk that not tomorrow, not next year, but you know, five, six, seven years down the road, we're going to find that that tool is not nearly as effective as it might have been. After a few years, if the United States does decide it wants to rejoin the agreement, how realistic is that and what would it require? Well, I think if, if you have a new administration in the United States after 2020, there's a very strong argument, and I would certainly support rejoining the nuclear agreement, you know, along with our original international partners in that. Now, that's assuming that the Iranians have stuck to their end of the bargain in the meantime. I do think, however, though, realistically, you'd have to couple that rejoining of the agreement with a urgent um, you know, set of challenges, which is to try to look at, you know, by that point, by 2021, you know, a number of the restrictions laid out in the original Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action are going to be getting closer and closer to their expiration. You know, some of the constraints on Iran's civilian nuclear program. And so we always knew when we d negotiated both the interim agreement at the end of 2013 and then the comprehensive agreement a year and a half later, that like any arms control process, you'd have to build on that with further agreements. There's just going to be a much greater sense of urgency of doing that at a time when, you know, a lot of time has passed since the original agreement uh, was reached. Well, President Trump did not come to an agreement with North Korea's Kim Jong-un in Vietnam. The talks in Vietnam between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un abruptly collapsed. No deal, no ceremonial niceties, and little hope now for a quick ending to the nuclear standoff on the Korean Peninsula. This morning, we have conflicting stories of why the president's summit with Kim Jong-un ended with no deal on nuclear weapons. Mr. Trump says he walked away because the North Korean leader wanted complete relief from U.S. sanctions. North Korean officials said in a rare news conference that they only wanted some sanctions lifted. Over the past year, the United States has not only changed course on Iran, but more recently, denuclearization talks with North Korea have broken down. Have we moved closer to possible confrontation and war in either scenario? 
Yeah, I, I worry on North Korea that, you know, through all the kind of triumphalist rhetoric and the pageantry of summitry in the summits last year in Singapore and then most recently in Hanoi, um, that the Trump administration is, is sort of setting itself up for a fall in a sense and creating the possibility of, you know, a resumption of the fire and fury rhetoric of 2017. But I think you know, it gets back to your earlier question about grand bargains, too. Uh, it seems to me that as you look at North Korea today, in the wake of the failed summit in Hanoi, um, you know, the lesson here, if you set aside the irony of what I'm about to say, is that the most practical step forward would look a lot like the interim agreement that we reached with the Iranians at the end of 2013. Now, those two situations are, of course, not perfectly analogous, chiefly because Iran didn't then and doesn't today have nuclear weapons. North Korea has dozens of them. And even as those summits have gone on, has continued to expand its capacity to build more bombs. But I do think that that interim agreement with Iran now six years ago, which froze its nuclear program, rolled it back in some significant respects, uh, introduced you know, the most intrusive verification and monitoring uh, measures that had ever been developed, uh, all in return for very modest sanctions relief in that first interim agreement. We preserved the bulk of our economic leverage for the comprehensive talks. If you could produce something roughly along that model with North Korea, it would not be a perfect agreement. It would just be a step forward. But I think it would be a way of reducing nuclear uh, and missile dangers on the Korean Peninsula. And, you know, oftentimes I've found um, in my own diplomatic experience that the alternative to a modest, if unsatisfying, practical step forward um, is not always a grand bargain or a better deal. You know, sometimes it's no deal or conflict. Um, and, you know, that's what diplomacy is designed to try to avoid. I'm going to zoom out from Iran, and I want to talk about the fact that you've served five presidents. Mm -hmm both Republican and Democrat. Each has had his own foreign policy focus. And as you've noted, the job of a diplomat is to carry out that president's agenda. Even when you disagree with it, you write about that extensively in your book. And in your book, you note that though you thought the 2003 invasion of Iraq was a mistake, and that overthrowing Hosni Mubarak in Egypt in 2011 would cause the country more instability, you make a persuasive case for the importance of soldiering on and doing mm -hmm. the job. But if foreign policy is so much a matter of presidential whim, how consistent can it be? Mm. Well, presidential leadership, you know, as we're reminded every day um, these days, is crucially important. And it's been important in every era in which I worked. You know, I over the course of three and a half decades, served administrations of both parties. I worked for five presidents and 10 secretaries of state. Um, and, and, you know, they those presidents and those secretaries, you know, had their own strengths and weaknesses. They're human beings. They also operated in a particular set of circumstances. And people oftentimes underestimate, I think, you know, how much those circumstances matter. A former British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan said a half century ago when he was asked, so what has the biggest impact on statesmanship? He said, events, dear boy, events. And, you know, the truth is he's right in the sense that even presidents who come into office which, with the most coherent, thoughtful, long-game vision 
have to face the challenges of the short game, whether it's in the Arab Spring or in other areas. And that's, that's very difficult for any president, even the most thoughtful and uh, flexible. Um, but, you know, that's what oftentimes shapes your reputation. I think what's different about President Trump and this White House is that for all their differences, for all the successes and the mistakes of his immediate predecessors, they shared a broad view that American foreign policy ought to be animated by enlightened self-interest. In other words, a sense that, of course, you've got to put your own country's interests first in the broad sense of the term, but that America's interests are best served by trying to multiply the number of countries and players in the world who broadly share those interests and to build institutions, international institutions, um, which you know, make it easier for us to promote our own interest as well as the sort of wider interests um, which exist on the international landscape. And I think President Trump has kind of turned that on its head with a, a sort of muscular unilateralism that sees the international order, however imperfect, that his predecessors had tried to build and adapt as a constraint on the United States. In other words, the sense that we're held hostage um, to the very order that we created. And I, I just think at this moment on the international landscape, that is a very flawed view of what serves American interests best. And I think the other thing, so there's a big difference in terms of philosophy. There's also a difference in process. You know, again, for all of its imperfections, as you look at the experience of his predecessors, the five preceding American presidents that I served as a diplomat, Processes worked well in some instances and poorly in others, but there was generally a sense that, you know, you needed a process that drew together, you know, the agencies of the U.S. government connected with national security, whether it's the State Department, Defense Department, the intelligence community, increasingly the Treasury Department, the Commerce Department, to make sure that you were thinking through the second and third order consequences of decisions that you made, that you were looking around the corner as best you could. In this administration, I think there's almost a total absence of process. Um, you are, as you were suggesting, you know, oftentimes witnessing a foreign policy that's driven by whim by the next tweet. And, you know, what that breeds, I think, is a sense on the part of a lot of people across the government that they're not in on the takeoff. And that makes landings a lot messier and a lot less predictable. And it causes lots of players around the world to lose confidence um, in American leadership when they see it as so erratic. So both in terms of philosophy and process, I think there are pretty profound differences today. Some of our previous guests on the podcast have actually talked about the challenges that the United States faces. And a lot of those challenges don't come from the outside. They're actually internal. The greatest threat to the future of American power is ourselves. If the United States can find a way to address the fiscal situation, a way to mitigate the severity of partisan polarization, a way to harness the domestic innovation base for national security purposes, you know, there are a number of solutions that we could come to that could move us past or sufficiently past those hurdles in order to realize what is a very favorable international situation. But, you know, to be frank, it's certainly not assured, and it's possible that the United States will not solve any of those problems. And in fact, the story of American decline will really be one of death by suicide. That should be a focus, many argue, for this particular government. 
Well, I think that's absolutely true um, in a couple of different respects. I do think in a lot of ways we get in our own way. Um, you know, in trying to conduct effective foreign policy overseas because our domestic dysfunctions, whether it's the gross inequalities in our system today, in many ways, you know, exposed and aggravated by the financial crisis in 2008, the disconnect between lots of American citizens and, to be honest, people like me, you know, card-carrying members of the Washington establishment, um, has also widened. And I think it's very important for American leaders who are thinking about how best to pursue American interests overseas to see the connection between those dysfunctions and our ability to operate effectively on the international landscape. I also think it's really important to be honest about the fact that Donald Trump didn't invent that disconnect. I believe he's ridden that wave and made it worse. But, you know, seeing the back of President Trump um, is not going to make those problems go away. And therefore, it's going to be really important to focus on those challenges. We oftentimes tell ourselves that, you know, smart American foreign policy begins at home in a strong, you know, domestic political and economic system. But we also need to make the argument to Americans that it ends there, too in better jobs and a healthier environment and more security as well. So I, I think it's a profound challenge in foreign policy, thinking of ways in which we address those domestic dysfunctions. Ambassador, we end each segment with this question. What gives you hope? Well, I'm, I'm generally an optimist, despite everything, <laughs> I've, I've, the litany of problems I've just described. I think there are two or three things that give me hope. I mean, one is just objectively, as I suggested before, I think the United States has a better hand to play than any of our rivals today uh, on the international landscape, if we play it wisely. And that's a big if right now. Second, um, I do have confidence in the resilience of domestic political institutions in this country. There's been a lot of corrosive damage done to them. I wish we weren't testing it so severely as we are right now in this administration, but I do have that sense of confidence. And and last but not least, you know, I have a lot of confidence in the next generation of Americans and what they can do in public service. Um, despite the belittling of public service and professional diplomatic service in this administration, despite the disdain um, that is often aimed at public service, um, you know, I, I remember when I had taken the Foreign Service exam at the end of the 70s, so a very long time ago, and was thinking of joining the Foreign Service, my dad, who was a career army officer, wrote me a letter. And I still vividly remember one line. He said, nothing can make you prouder than to serve your country with honor. Now, I wasn't so sure of that at the time, but I spent the next three and a half decades basically learning the wisdom of that advice. And, and I know that there's a generation of Americans out there, you know, people who really represent the best of American society, who look like, you know, the richness of American society, you know, who can realize the wisdom of that kind of advice, too. So that gives me a lot of hope as well. Ambassador Burns, thank you. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. William Burns is the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the author of The Back Channel, a memoir of American diplomacy and the case for its renewal. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley.